For those of you who will be in distress, if we don't keep on schedule this morning, I'll just go ahead and say right now, we're not going to be on schedule this morning. <laughs> we're going to go till about 10.15, um, and then we'll take a break from 10.15 to 10.30 because we're going to have um, time in that to catch up in that next session and go from 10.30 to 11.15. So we'll, we'll get back on schedule, don't worry. Um, we'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we consider to think through together the mission of marriage. As last night we, we just laid some groundwork for what is the point? Why does marriage exist? To what end does it serve? And so we looked at how not from just human neediness and desire was marriage brought about, but from divine purpose and will, that God gives us the gift of marriage. He originated it in his own mind and put it together, joined us together, and then gave us this gift to serve above all things his glory, to display Christ and the church, to help us to know him and see him and reflect him, and that our joy in marriage, our peace in marriage, our uh, hope for marriage, just the goodness of marriage is all wrapped up in God being in the middle, Christ being in the middle, Christ being the one who strengthens us and sustains us, so that, praise God, we're not the ones that when we wake up in the morning that marriage depends upon, but upon Him. So He doesn't want us getting up in the morning and going, all right, here I go, I'm going to perform for you today, Lord. I'm going to make our marriage great. Um, but no, it's, Lord, we need you. <laughs> Help us. We depend upon you. If we are to reflect Christ in the church, we need you to be in it. But this morning, we we're attending our attention to, the, to, to what's our part. If you can imagine getting a new job and going in there Monday morning and sitting with your new employer and hopefully by then you already know what your job is, but maybe you haven't talked about it yet, and you say, okay, what do you want me to do? And your employer looks at you and says, whatever. Well, what's, what's my job? Eh, whatever. There may be a part of that you go, oh, nice, I can just do whatever I want. But within a few hours, you'll probably find yourself lost, aimlessly wandering around your office building, going, what am I here for? There's something about a title that's helpful. There's something about knowing your place. Having the title point guard on your basketball team, having the title quarterback, brings with it a whole lot of clarity. Vice president of marketing. Now, you also need to know what's involved in that title, but there's something about knowing our place in whatever role we're given, that is important. And praise God, he hasn't left us in this world just to figure it out. Lord, what do you want me, what's my place today? What's my place in marriage? He doesn't say, well, whatever. <laughs> now he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, No, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a passage that's just loaded with statements about our place in this world, about our place in marriage about our place in our homes and in our churches. That now we in Christ, according to the Paul, no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're new creations, he says. We're to see other people, other Christians, as new creations. We no longer represent ourselves, but we live, he says, as ambassadors of Christ. I mean, that is a comprehensive life identity statement. Ambassadors for Christ. We're citizens of another country, living in a foreign land, representing the king of our homeland in that country, and serving the citizens of that homeland who are living in this foreign country with us. That's what he's saying. This is who we are. And I think we all sort of believe this. I think we all kind of know this theologically. At least we know it when it comes to doing overseas missions. We know it when it comes to interacting maybe with non-Christians at the grocery store. My concern for us today is do we know this when it comes to our own households? Do we know this and believe this when it comes to our marriages? That every day I see evidence, even in my own life, that this idea has not gotten into my own attitude about marriage. Do I actually see myself as an ambassador for Christ to my wife? Am I speaking as one who represents Christ in the life of my wife? Am I thinking about myself as someone who is given the ministry of reconciliation toward my wife? Or largely do I think of her as exempt from that? I think most of us think of ourselves as, as exempt from it. And the evidence is often in just how we speak to each other, how we think about one another how we relate to our mate when they're struggling, when they're struggling to believe the gospel, when they're struggling to live at peace, when they're struggling to speak with kindness, when they're struggling with sin, when they're struggling with rudeness, when they're struggling with whatever burdens and pressures and weaknesses they're carrying. In those moments, do we see ourselves, okay, ambassador for Christ? And I would argue no, usually not, <laughs> which is why Paul has to say this, which is why Paul has to say this to Christians at the church in Corinth. How many of us see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ to our spouse? That's the first question for you to think about. 
How many of you have ever thought about yourself that way in marriage? This is my place in our home. How many of us believe our most important function in the life of our spouse is to help them see and enjoy and delight in and worship Jesus Christ? That we see that's the most important place I have with them. Can you think about that illustration of an ambassador? That they really do serve two functions. You know, if you're an ambassador of the United States in France, who are you there representing? Yeah, the, the United States of America. You're representing the president and the people of your homeland there in that country. But then you think about it, that's not all that ambassador is doing. What about other citizens of the United States of America who are living in France? Do you serve a function with them? You do, right? That the, the embassy is sort of the home turf of your homeland in that foreign land, which is in many ways what the church is. We're an embassy in an alien country. We are an embassy of heaven on earth. And so we're there to represent king and homeland in this foreign land, but we're also there to serve the citizens of our homeland that are still living with us in this foreign land, to be a place of refuge, to be a place where Christ is king even there. We care for the interest of subjects from our homeland who are currently residing inside the borders of this foreign country. And I think as ambassadors of Christ, we're also called to assume that role, to be ministers of reconciliation with other Christians, to be ministers of reconciliation to our husband or to our wife. We see it in John 13, 35, where, John, or where Jesus is going to say, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So I would even argue that that role as an ambassador is even more primary than just representing Christ to non-Christians. Because it's how non-Christians will know we actually represent Christ. John 17, So that the world may believe that you sent me, Jesus is saying, he wants us to love one another. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, Jesus says, that they may be one just as we're one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, your unity with your spouse, your love for your spouse your representing Christ with your spouse in a faithful way is the testimony to the world that you're Christ, that God the Father really did send Jesus into the world to die in the place of sinners and reconcile them to God and make them whole new creatures. And the evidence is, is, is when the world sees us as Christians in action, when the world sees us as husbands and wives representing Christ to one another. So just think for a minute, is that sort of ambassador role, that place, sort of what captures how you tend to relate to your mate? Or do you tend to more relate as a husband, uh, as the king? To dominate, to rule, to govern, to have your will be done, to have your kingdom come. 
Or as a wife, is it less of an ambassador or more as a queen? To have your kingdom come, your will be done. And that what's actually happening in conversation is the collision of kings and queens, not the ministry of ambassadors. Or maybe if you take it on the role of savior, where you've entered into marriage to, to save your spouse from themselves, to redeem them, to perfect them, to fix them, to clean them up, to make sure that if anything's out of line, you've pointed out. Or maybe lawyer, is that the role? You're sort of the chief interrogator and litigator of your household. Whenever something has to be debated, that that's, that's sort of the role you take on as that of an attorney, to, to argue the case, to win them over. You see, how there's, we always take on a role, right? We always assume some place. And so it's worth thinking through what, what types of words, what types of job titles would best capture what you do day-to-day in your interaction with your husband or wife. But ambassadors who represent Christ, reflect Christ, even speak for Christ, that's what God wants us to see and take on. Which means when your spouse hurts you, do you move toward them in love to even help them understand the love of God for them? the forgiveness of sins that's available in Christ, the depth of the grace that's lavished on them in Christ. When we see our mates drowning in selfishness and anxiety, do, do we pray for them? Is that sort of how we see ourselves as ministers of intercession? Pray for them, minister to them see the struggle and, and desire to reconcile, help them reconcile to God and to, to others? Or do we get bitter? Do we get cold? Do we get withdrawn? Do we go, you know what, I'm just going to give them space, let them work this thing out. I'm going to go for a drive. And hopefully when I get back, it'll be settled. Again, how many of us, that's our approach when our mate's struggling. It's, whoa, take a wide berth. And we even warn the kids, right? Stay clear. Or we go, no, this is, this is what ambassadors do. This is what ministers of reconciliation do. And especially when you think about when personally offended, when personally hurt. Do we take our cues from our spouse and therefore respond in kind? Oh, okay, you're going to critique me? Well, check this out. Oh, you're going to be mean? Well, I've got one for you. And it may be in harsh words or it just may be in cold shoulders. But either way, the, the pattern we're going to be given, because again, what's the example Paul looks to? It's going to be to Christ, that God was all this time in the world through Christ reconciling us to himself. And what kind of reception did he get? What kind of words did he hear? What generally has been our way of treating the Lord Jesus? Because he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was mocked. He was persecuted. He was distrusted. Even read the Gospels, even with his disciples around him, how often they're trying to correct him, 
You know, Jesus, don't you care? We're perishing. Or Martha, Jesus, don't you care? My sister's left me to do all the cleaning up alone. Or Peter even, far be it from you, Lord, that you should go to the cross. So nobody understood what he was doing. And often what he's going to get from those who are his enemies is hostility. From those who are his friends, it's going to be unbelief and distrust and criticism. And yet he never forgets who he is. He knows why he came. And he knows it wasn't for people's approval. He knows why he was there. And it wasn't to get everybody to treat him well. He came because God, through him, was reconciling the world to himself. And then Paul says, and he's given us that ministry. He's given us that word of reconciliation. That when Jesus says, okay, follow in my footsteps, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, that's what he's talking about. That we would take on that place, not just when treated well, but especially when treated poorly. As Jesus put it, if you only love those who love you, what good are you? Even the tax collectors do the same. He's saying, I can get a non-Christian to do that. (laughs) I can get an unbeliever to love people who love them. But when you give grace when hurt, when you speak compassionately when offended, when you love under the hardest sometimes of circumstances, he said, now that, the world has no explanation for. And when they ask, you can say, Christ. He's made me a new creature. He's redeemed my life from the pit, which gets us to, okay, how do we do this? How do we fulfill our role as ambassadors? He gives us to it there in verse 14, be controlled by the love of Christ. That's the first way we do this. For the love of Christ controls us. We could say, well, as opposed to what controlling us? Well, you go back into verse 12 and 13, and we can say, well, as opposed to the praise and the adoration and the opinions of people controlling us. Because what Paul's even saying to the Corinthians, hey, that's not what controls us. We're not going to be controlled to what everybody thinks or to outward appearance or to everybody's opinions. No, but we're controlled by the love of Christ, meaning it's the love of Christ for us that love of Christ that's been displayed at Calvary that now restrains us from doing what we should not do and compels us to do what he calls us to do. As opposed to the praise of people, the adoration of people, the opinions of man, that's one reason why when in public our marriages tend to look different than when in private. Right? Why is that? Well, because many of us are more controlled by the praise of people than we realize. And when others are watching publicly, we'll speak well, we'll serve, we'll love. But in the privacy of our homes, the flesh takes over. And so we have to sort of break through that category and realize, okay, to God, it's all public. (laughs) To God, he sees it, whether it's in our homes or outside of our homes. Even with King David, you will recall the story of his Yeah, adultery with Bathsheba and then murder of Uriah and then takes her as his wife and thinks, okay, we we covered it up. We're good. But then Scripture says, but the, the thing David did displeased the Lord. And he sends Nathan the prophet and confronts David 
and is going to deal with David. He's going to forgive David and give grace to David. But then he's also going to say, and then let's put it in the Bible. And then for centuries, we read about it. Because from God's point of view, it's not just about David. It's not about David's image. It's not about his reputation. It is about God's glory and God's grace. And what we find is from Psalm 51 is David doesn't mind Because what he sees is the real display is God's grace lavished upon him in the forgiveness of his sins. And so he goes, so so tell the world. And so we see constantly in the scripture that, that, that God doesn't want us controlled by image, controlled by the adoration of others, controlled by what everybody else thinks, nor controlled by verse 15, the desires of our flesh, just selfish desires. When we really think about how much of what we do and how we relate to our mate is controlled by what we want, what we're trying to get, what we hope people will think or not think. Yet Paul says, not those things, but rather the love of Christ is what should control us. So just ask yourself, what controls you in marriage? Is it image? Is it anxiety? Is that what tends to shape and drive your words, your reason for speaking or not speaking? I'm going to say all this because I'm afraid. Or I'm going to be silent because I'm afraid of what will happen if I say something. Or greed. Or just the desire for pleasure. Just the desire for comfort. The desire for ease. Desire just for a clean house, a tidy life. Just think through what what tends to control me, what I say, what I don't say, how I relate, how I don't relate. And then to see what the gospel is trying to do in us is more and more move us toward the control of the love of Christ. That when somebody says, why did you say that? Because he loves me. Why did you not say something? Well, because he loves me. Why do we think and feel and relate in marriage the way we do? Well, because of the love of Christ that has been poured out on us. And he explains why there in that verse, one died for all, therefore all died. That's what we're meant to see. That Christ died in my place. That while I was yet a sinner, the Father sent him to die in my place, to bear my sin, to take away wrath, to impute to me his righteousness so that I can be reconciled to God, adopted into his family, secured forever, filled with his spirit, given eternal life. And that one dying for all means I died and I'm no longer to live for myself. Again, that's life-changing. When we see, okay, he died for me, therefore I'm dead. And now the new life I live, I live by faith in him. And I live for his glory and by his power. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, do we think often about the gospel? Do I reflect often on he died in my place? He rose for my salvation. He gave his life that I can be forgiven. 
He gave his life so that I could be reconciled to God. He laid his life down. He sacrificed glory. He came from glory, took on human flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, was a servant, a bond slave all his days in order to reconcile you to God. Because Paul clearly thinks that the more we believe that, the more we meditate on it, the more we marvel at that truth, the more controlled by it we'll become. Because when you really think about it, we, we are controlled by what we obsess about. We are controlled by what we dwell on. You ever noticed if you go on some kind of TV binge, some kind of series, you know, now with Netflix you can do these series binges, watch like 98 hours of a single episode of, or a single series in like two days. And what do you notice when you come out from that? Or, or some other kind of binge, a novels that you're reading, or some new obsession you get into? Does your vocabulary start to change? Do you notice that? Do the illustrations that come to your mind in the middle of life begin to shift around? Do you find yourself talking like the characters in it? Seeing the world a little bit through their eyes? Relating to others in ways you can't even explain, only that, oh, wait, this feels familiar, like I'm living out this. Even the things you begin to see around you. I mean, if you watch like seven days straight of some, you know, like 24 or something, some, everywhere you turn, you're thinking, are they a spy, you know? <laughs> Is there a bomb there? Is there, it affects you. It's sort of paradigm shaping. It's worldview shaping. Well, Paul thinks for the Christian, the gospel should be that. This is the water we drink of every time. This is what we obsess about, is Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, so that when the pressure goes up for you, when you get squeezed, when you're in a situation you don't see coming, and the pressure's on, that what comes out of you when you get squeezed is gospel. Because he died for all, he says, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, no longer living for our own cravings, no longer living for our own desires, no longer living for my agenda. What do I want to see happen? What desires do I want to see fulfilled? But rather, we ask, Lord, what do you want to see happen? What are your desires? What would honor you? What would please you? What would represent you? Yeah, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, let those who speak, speak as those who are speaking the very oracles of God, so that in all things he might be glorified. I think there's something about it that's a very sobering, frightening, and encouraging verse to say, okay, when you speak, any of you ever you're to speak as if you're speaking for God, because you are. <laughs> How weighty is that? How, therefore, dependent must we be, okay, well then, Lord, please control me. <laughs> and, Lord, I need your spirit to rule my heart. I need your words to be the words that fill me, so that when I speak, I speak what you would want to say. So be controlled by the love of Christ. Secondly, it means we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's another way we fulfill our role. 
We see here, he says that, that we recognize no one any longer according to the flesh. Not only do we see ourselves in a new light, we're to see others in a new light. So this means that we no longer regard one another according to just outside appearances and worldly standards. We no longer regard each other to how they look or just to the way in which they speak or carry themselves, the jobs they hold, on and on and on. But we view them according to what God is doing in them, what God is doing through them. We're no longer to view them naturalistically as if nature's all there is, but to regard them as new creatures in Christ, as God's special possession, as who God is growing and conforming to the image of his Son. Because our view of Christ is not based on his physical appearance, right? How many of you have ever seen Jesus physically? Right. No longer do we regard him according to worldly achievements. How many of you have ever wondered, what how much Jesus made a year? Right. What was his income annually? Wonder how, what kind of 40 time he had. Like, what, what was his foot speed? Could he throw a spiral? I wonder how, how great he looked. I wonder if his, he had a good haircut. I wonder how tall he was. I wonder how handsome. Well, we, we know generally that he was not attractive. The Bible tells us that much. That the world would not have looked at him and go, no, that is a good looking man. That's why we know all the paintings are wrong. <laughs> you look at the painting and go, that can't be him. He is too good looking. No, that he would have been one from whom we hide our faces. He would have been one that, again, by worldly appearance, would not have been impressive. That's why Paul's going to say, so we don't regard him this way. And you're like, why would we regard each other that way? Why would we not regard one another according to what, what Christ is doing in them? How God is changing them and growing them. How God has gifted them. So I think it's worth asking yourself, do you regard your mate according to outer appearances? According to their performance? according to their intellectual level, according to their achievements, according to their income, according to their just physical attractiveness in the eyes of the world? Do you measure and esteem your spouse upon the quality of their speech or their dress or their smell or their athletic ability or their parenting or the behavior of the kids? Do you view your spouse through their family origin, through their gender, through their physical appearance, or through their standing in Christ? I, I find that this actually is the number one cause for divorce in the world. It's just regarding spouse according to the flesh. You ask many, what, why, why, why don't you like your spouse anymore? Why are you leaving? Why are you and just the things that are listed, it's never because of all that Christ is doing in them. It's all outer appearance stuff. It's all flesh stuff. It's all they don't fit into some mold. They're not pleasing to them anymore according to the world. And certainly not according to Christ. And so if you really want to make yourself miserable in marriage, just regard your spouse according to the flesh. Just keep measuring them. <laughs> keep judging them. Keep sizing them up next to the, the next person. Next to 
what the flesh says they ought to be. You really want to be joyful in marriage. You really want to be satisfied and delighted in your mate. Just regard them according to all that God is doing in them and through them, all that God has lavished on them in Christ, who they are as God's child, who they are as God's image bearer. And then even to begin to realize that they are the new standard of what a wife should be or what a husband should be. So guys ask me, well, what should my wife look like? She should look the way she is. That's your new standard. <laughs> Any woman who's taller than her is too tall. Any woman that's shorter than her is too short. Any woman that's smarter than her is too smart. Any woman that makes more money than her makes too much. Any woman whose house is cleaner than her house has too clean a house. You go down the list. She's the standard. He's the standard. Whatever position guys have that are higher ranking, more power, more money than your husband, it's too much. Because this is the right amount. And so just it, it settles that issue. Whatever externals, whatever those things, got, whatever your mate has is right. And now you get to regarding them according to Christ. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. You have to ask yourself, is God pleased with what he's doing in your spouse? So be careful about critiquing God's work. Be careful about judging what he's doing and the rate in which he's doing it. Because he thinks he's doing a good job. Right? He's pleased with what he's bringing about. And then thirdly, embrace life as a minister of the gospel. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation as though we're making an appeal through us, Paul says. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's certainly what we say to non-Christians. I think it's also what we will from time to time say to our fellow believers. To appeal, to beg on behalf of Christ, to... Continue to live out your reconciliation to God, to repent of sin, to receive forgiveness, to trust in the gospel, to depend upon his strength, to feast upon his word, live reconciled. Which means you need to realize that your spouse needs continual help with this. Continual help seeing and believing and trusting in Christ as Savior, Christ as Lord. It's not just one and done. Your spouse needs help every day, seeing, remembering, just like you need help every day, seeing and remembering that never should we, when our spouse needs to hear more promises of God's grace, should we go again, again, how often does Paul come back to this stuff? How often is he going to talk about the love of God? How often is he going to refer to the grace of God in Christ? You even read Paul's prayers, and just, it's astounding. What, he's praying that God would give us eyes to comprehend the love of God because he thinks it just surpasses knowledge. He thinks you just never get to the bottom of it. 
you never graduate from grace. You never graduate from understanding the love of God. It's constant. Well, then it's just having the mentality every day, my spouse needs help seeing this, hearing this, remembering this. But then secondly, realize that you need constant help seeing it. You need constant help believing it. You need constant help enjoying Jesus Christ. And so you need a spouse who will help you remember. That's why we have to feed upon the Word every day. How many of you eat food every few days? Physically. Now, how many times do you eat food? And if you miss a meal, what do you call it? Fasting. Just extreme devotion to God, right? If you miss a single meal. No, we arrange our lives around it, right? We plan our day around where's breakfast, where's lunch, where's dinner, where, what are the snacks in the middle? And if you, like, forget your lunch one day, you go to work, you don't have your lunch, it's like panic, right? Like, how am I going to survive the afternoon? No, we, we think about it. We plan for it. We arrange it. We consume it. Well, how many of us approach the Word of God that way? That he says is more important than physical food. That you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. And so just realizing that's the kind of help he thinks we need. That we have to feed on the Word the way our bodies feed on food. I think it also means that we need to joyfully accept that our spouses are sinners, right? And it's, it is amazing as Christians even how shocked we are when we get into marriage and realize what? Oh my goodness, they're selfish. Like what kind of deceit did they pull on me, right? They begin to argue about things and not do things that we ask and things we've told them time and time. And we just were dumbfounded, right? Well, that's just because we, we didn't really take God's word for it. That This is who we are and this is who we're marrying so that when there's sin, we go, yeah, this is, makes sense. This is where ministry of reconciliation and ministry of the gospel and love for one another is meant to be distinct as Christians in our homes, is it's in what we do with sin. It's not the absence of sin. It's the presence of confession, the presence of repentance, the presence of forgiveness, the presence of grace, the presence of seeking God for help, the presence of taking refuge in Christ. That's what makes it distinctive, not the absence of. To joyfully accept your spouse. I mean, just how often do you see Jesus going, what on earth is happening with these guys? It's, what he's usually shocked by is faith, right? You see Jesus marvel, it's in the faith. Like, whoa, that's a lot of faith. That's shocking. But lack of faith? He's going to call it out, oh, you have little faith, but you'll never see him surprised. He knows, again, who he's dealing with. He knows why he's there. And he doesn't resent it. I mean, sometimes I ask myself, how come? I mean, he was around these 12 guys every day. 
for three years at least and night. And he could hear what they thought. He could know what they were feeling. I just go, how come he wasn't the most bitter guy that ever lived? Compared to him, everything was wrong. Compared to him, everything was ugly. Everything was misplaced. The amount of false worship, the amount of idolatry, the amount of wickedness that he, the Son of God, is around and witnessing and experiencing. And yet how he's just so free (laughs) just to love people. He's just so free to serve. I think it goes back to he knows why he's come. He knows what his role is. He knows what his place is. That even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It also means joyfully accepting and trusting and that trusting and following Jesus in marriage is costly. I think we have to realize that. As ambassadors for Christ in our homes, it's costly. It takes self-denial. It takes losing things. It takes giving up things. It takes enduring things. And so Jesus at no point is going to come to earth saying to his father, I hope this doesn't hurt. He knows what's coming. He's still going to pray, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. But not my will be done. Your will be done. Think for us, it's those kind of prayers even in marriage. Lord, I'd love for this to not be so. Lord, I'd love for you to repair, fix, make this go away. Then we always have to close those prayers with what? But not my will be done. Your will be done. But then also be convinced that gospel ministry in marriage is always worthwhile. Always worth it. Always good. There will be a day where we will certainly look back from heaven and be so glad for perseverance. So glad for enduring it. So I was talking to even some parents this week about whose kids are headed out of their house, going to college, and I don't think it's regret that they're in. They're they're just sort of observing. They have all these, wow, we're so thankful we took this time with them and endured these things with them and was just patient. Other areas were like, we so wish we'd spent more time. We so wish we'd been more patient. We wish we hadn't just tried to force all this. And, And so there's always something about you get through it and you look back. And so I think it's seeing that now. That in marriage, to, to persevere in love, to persevere in faithfulness, to persevere in serving, you won't regret it. It is worthwhile. Um, that's why even Paul, as he's writing from prison in the closing years of his life, even Second Timothy, as he's awaiting his death, about to be beheaded, um, he's not at all saying, what did I do wrong? He's not going, oh, man, how did I get here? No, he's just praising God that by God's grace, he's been able to finish the race. And so it also means loving your spouse the way God loves your spouse. 
with the power and wisdom that he supplies through his word and through his spirit. That that as ambassadors is, I think, always to be in the back of our minds. How does God love my mate? What would God want to say? Which means there's going to be times where you're going to say hard things, but in love, for their good, for the sake of their soul, for the glory of Christ's kingdom. And so to really just as, okay, ambassador is my place. Now, how do I represent him? How do I live out, okay, minister of reconciliation? How do I help, and by God's grace, to, to take on more the righteousness of God, to help them take on the righteousness of God? So again, what that isn't is, okay, here are the nine tips to this or this. Any more than if you're given the role of, okay, point guard, there's a thousand nuances to how you do that. But what it means is, okay, it's first, okay, accepting here's the place you're given. Here's the calling that's on your life. Here's the identity that God has assigned to you. And from accepting that place of ambassador come thousands of implications about what we see and say and feel and think and do. So you'll hopefully have there in your notes just a number of, again, discussion questions that are just for you to take with you in these hours ahead, to pray through, to talk through with your mate, to talk through with other couples, just to continue to just ask God to kind of soak into us the mind of Christ, the mission of Christ as we relate to our husband or wife. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we firstly praise you that you in Christ have been reconciling the world to yourself all along, reconciling us to yourself, that he has died in our place and we have died with him so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for him. Father, through your spirit, help us do that more. We can't in and of ourselves. We don't have what it takes, but Lord, you do. And so we ask that you would just one degree at a time conform us to the image of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I think we're going to take